and welcome to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Jana, your host for this episode, and with me today are Devin. Hello. And Johannes. Hello. To discuss our latest pick, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know by Adam Grant. And a little info about the author. Adam Grant has been Wharton's top-rated professor for seven straight years. As an organizational psychologist, he is a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. He has been recognized as one of the world's 10 most influential management thinkers and Fortune's 40 Under 40. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of five books that have sold millions of copies and been translated into 35 languages, including Think Again, Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. His books have been named among the year's best by Amazon, Apple, The Financial Times, and The Wall Street Journal. His New York Times article on languishing is one of the most shared articles of 2021. And Brene Brown, best-selling New York Times author of Dare to Lead, writes of Think Again, this, this is the right book for right now. Yes, learning requires focus, but unlearning and relearning requires much more. It requires choosing courage over comfort. In Think Again, Adam Grant weaves together research and storytelling to help us build the intellectual and emotional muscle we need to stay curious enough about the world to actually change it. I've never felt so hopeful about what I don't know. And let's start with our initial impressions and ratings of this book. I'll go first. I have been a fan of Adam Grant since... I found out about his podcast a couple years ago when I went to a conference on leadership, and it's called Work Life with Adam Grant. I really admire Adam Grant for all the work that he does as an organizational psychologist. His motto is, I make work not suck, or I try to. <laughs> and I think that that's so important because, as Adam points out, we spend most of our waking hours at work, and we are emotional creatures, and we don't just drop that part of ourselves when we enter the workplace, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, work from home, maybe we still have that part of ourselves. And so I really admire that he is trying to help organizations um, both do better and succeed um, in their fields, but also to uh, bolster the happiness of their employees. So I highly recommend this book for everyone, but especially for managers and those in leadership positions. So I give it four stars. Yeah, um, I give it four stars as well. I um, really enjoyed this book. It was very easy to read. Um, although I did an audio book, I do have the book um, on hand and the chapters were short. Uh, um, listening to Adam Grant, he is the narrator. He has a very easy to listen to voice. He's funny. You can kind of see his humor or you can hear his humor come through um, when he talks. Uh, had a lot of really good information, which he backs up with studies. And, um, you know, I actually kind of learned a lot. And there were a few points that he made that I will take with me, um, you know, forever. And I give this, uh, yeah, I give this book four stars as well. I really liked this book. Um, lots of different reasons. I think, yeah, like you mentioned, Devin, he was funny. <laughs> Some of his humor really got me. Um, I think that it's this is also a rare book in that it you can use this, I mean, everywhere. And 
it's, you know, everywhere from if you're in charge of a, you know, labor dispute, mm-hmm. contract negotiations, you know, at your own job with trying to get a promotion or in an interview, that sort of thing. Or if you have kids. Yeah. <laughs> or if you have any relationship with any other human being on the planet. Yeah. Right. You can use this with the the Uncle Bob who has that crazy. <laughs> crazy what, Uncle Bob. You, what you, believe, <laughs> you know, that crazy political opinion yeah. or. Um, you know, or uh, a total misinformation mm-hmm. um, theory in his head. Like you can use all, you can use this book in all of those situations. You can. So I thought it was amazingly broad, um, really practical. But like you said, Devin, also, I mean, grounded in science. I mean, like all this book is just super evidence based yeah. at every turn. So that's what I really liked, um, especially. Um, yeah, really down to earth, really and accessible. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to be some kind of academic to understand what he's Absolutely saying. Not. Yeah, he, yep. he lays it down pretty easy. Yes. Um, and so uh, the, I guess my only, my only critique would be it, it felt a little repetitive to me. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, yep, I got the point. Yep. And he has three more mm-hmm. sentences yep. about it. Mm-hmm. Then again, that's hypocritical of me. Like, because <laughs> when I'm trying to make points, I also, I want to make sure that the reader has, you know, gets it and yep. that I've covered all the angles and that, you know, maybe the next sentence is really where it, where it clicks in the, person's mind but um i think that especially at the end there was the actions for impact section Mm -hmm. where he really condenses everything Mm -hmm. down to okay this is what you you know these are the steps so for me that cleared that up pretty much um so i I give it four and a half oh wow i really liked it Mm -hmm. yeah all right thanks johannes yeah he is a professor um as i mentioned at wharton and um i think his writing style reflects that Mm -hmm. it's very um, the way that I learned how to write in high school, like the point, the um, explanations, or sorry, the illustrations and then the explanation. So he's like tying up so neatly, like every single paragraph. I, I got that as well. But it, it is helpful in that I think it sticks with you. So let's move on to the questions. Um, Adam kind of divides his book into different sections, individual rethinking, interpersonal rethinking, and collective rethinking. So we'll start out with the individual rethinking section. How much rethinking is too much, Johannes? <laughs> well, as a, as a, uh, I don't know, not rethinker, but hyperthinker. Sometimes like over, I think. Overthinker. Yeah, overthink you, exactly. Yes, yes. that's um, how I answered the question. It was like rethinking yeah. or overthinking because I uh, are they same thing? Yeah, and, and that's the thing, right? <laughs> There's They're not. They're totally different. One is kind of almost a neurotic sort of thing where your brain just won't let something go and mm-hmm. your the thought just goes around and around in your head. And the other is it has a purpose and there's a method and you can put goals to it. You know, it's like, okay, I want, I want to rethink my, uh, my, my career or my, my thinking about how I interact with my team. Okay. And that has a goal that has a purpose. And mm-hmm. you can look at the, at the end of that process in your head and say, okay, well, have I changed my thinking, you know, or am I just as wound up or even more so at the end? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that that is, that's definitely the difference there. And, and I think also that, I mean, one, one drives you insane. The other one makes you more confident. You know, even if all you do is say, okay, now I know my doubts. Now I understand what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Even just that it grounds you. It's it a powerful feeling. On. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I struggled with the difference between rethinking and overthinking because, I mean, the question is how much rethinking is too much. Mm-hmm. And t- 
to me, it's only too much when you can't make up your mind. If you're constantly going back and forth, is that rethinking or is that overthinking? To me, I think that's overthinking. Um, I can be quite indecisive and easily swayed at times when it comes to like small you know, um, not very important decisions. Like, what do you want for lunch? I'm like, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. Um, that's not rethinking. That's overthinking. Um, but I think when it comes to the big things, it's a good idea to keep an open mind and, you know, always be receptive to rethinking, you know, like you said, overthinking can make you a little crazy, which I am prone to often. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I thought it was really interesting that he says that the brighter you are, the harder it can be to see your own limitations. Being good at thinking can make you worse at rethinking. Yeah, yeah. That was the opposite of what I would think would be the case. But, yeah, you know, I mean, the things that are going on in the world right now and the things that are being talked about and argued about um, in the world, it seems like, the people who are, God, I don't know if I should say this, not as bright are the ones that uh, struggle with the rethinking. Mm-hmm. Is that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, who's saying the opposite? The people who are the brighter ones are the ones that struggle more with the rethinking. But I would have thought it would be the opposite. Well, and I think also bright people tend to have lots of kind of tools and resources at their disposal in their mm-hmm. brain. And your brain can go down any one of those. Yeah. And sometimes your brain, you know, it will pick the one that makes itself look good. Sure. Look the best. Guilty of and that. And so, and you, you can also marshal evidence. Like if you've ever been, um, you know, if you've been in an argument where somebody else has a completely different uh, viewpoint, mm-hmm. but they've done a lot of research. Mm-hmm. Like if you do enough research, you can find bad enough journals sure. that say, <laughs> oh yeah, this is totally true. That's totally true. That sort of thing. And that don't have good arguments, or that that aren't that aren't authoritative or scientifically based. Yeah. And so then, you know, if you know about those resources, your brain can go, "Oh yeah, I'm going to pick that one because then I can say, look at me, I cite my sources, haha, I win." Mm-hmm. And um, I think that if you if you if you don't have those those resources, maybe you think, "Well, I think this, but I don't really have anything to back up back it up, so I'm just going to stay quiet." You know, and somebody who does gets to say, "Oh yeah, I, you know, I put forth this argument, so I yeah. win." Yeah, I don't. Yeah, the, the whole bright people don't rethink as often as non-bright people. Yeah, I just and you know, what do you mean by a bright person? I mean, someone that has you know letters behind their name. I mean, that's I've met extremely not bright people with lots of <laughs> degrees, and extremely bright people with you know not even a high school education. So, mm-hmm. I don't. That was part of the book that I would kind of you know questioned raised, a little ra- bit. Yeah, I did. I did. I think one explanation could be that uh, folks that are, you know, really good at thinking can can fall into the trap of knowing that they're good at thinking and hubris and ego, and that ties into it too. So if you have like a facility with cognition and you're an expert in your field, like it could be harder for you to step back and question. Yeah, I think that's what his argument was. Yeah, yeah. Um, your own statements, um, and especially like folks in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Um, he calls it the totalitarian ego. Yes. Um, ego has that <laughs> kind of, that can take over. Cause well. problems in, in human <laughs> history forever. Right. And I think yeah. especially for leaders, right. They are mm-hmm. the ones quote unquote at the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The book stops with them. They make the final call. And so it's, I think an inherent 
characteristic of, of people in that in that position to say, well, I can't broadcast doubt, yeah. right? I can't be like, well, you know, I'm considering to, you know, I'm continuing to, to examine my position on this. I'm not really sure, you know, which is kind of the base of rethinking, which is to say, well, uh-huh. how do you know that you're right? And how do you know that this is really the final final call? So I think it's easy to get entrenched in that position and just say, okay, well, you know, I, I can't, I can't show any weakness. Therefore, yes, this is the right yeah. decision under all cases. That's this is it. the way we've always done it. We're not changing it under my watch because it might go wrong and yeah. then it's my fault, which right. is not the sign of a good leader. You know, that's a good leader takes risks. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it does go wrong, they do take the blame. And, you know, when it goes right, they give the congratulations to the people they're leading is the way it should be. But yeah, it's very rare. Yeah, that's not the mm-hmm. part of the culture that the, mm-hmm. like we were going to talk of in yeah. a little while, the joy of being wrong. Yeah. Yes. There's, that doesn't really exist. Yeah. So he talks about the three types of um, personalities, I think, when it comes to making arguments, the prosecutor, the politician, and the, um, help me out here, what's was the last it, was one? Was prophet? No. Politician, prosecutor. Preacher. 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 And preacher. Yeah. yeah. And how those identities kind of like get mingled into the fact that then you not you're not able to think like a scientist because you get like identified with your belief system um at the time so you're either like proselytizing trying to get others on board or you're being a politician and trying to get supporters Mm -hmm. um or you are um, being a lawyer, a prosecutor, um, making your case, right? Whereas the scientist on the other side is the the one that he is endorsing and saying, yes. you come up with your hypothesis, but you always test. Yes. Um, Asking why a lot. Yes. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, why would I be wrong? How would I be wrong? You know, you're looking at the ways that you could be wrong instead of the ways that you're right. Right. Yeah. Which... And not really tied to Great. any hypothesis, no, right? Like there's not. no skin in that game that Mm-mm. scientist just says, well, if I'm wrong, awesome, because yeah. mm-hmm. now I get to be less yeah. wrong in the future. I know, I love that. I love I that. Love that. that yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes. So to, to kind of continue with this idea of testing, um, when should you trust your intuition versus test your intuition? I found this question of intuition fascinating. Huh. Um, so your intuition is your gut feeling, basically, right? Your gut check. Um, I really feel like it's usually something that can be trusted, and I think um, as women, sorry, Johannes, as, yeah, as women, ahead. you know, I, I was always taught, trust your gut. You know, if you're feeling uncomfortable with a situation or a person that you're with, get out, you know, don't worry about, you know, looking rude. But... <sighs> You know, you don't, you don't, you don't test it then, you know, (laughs) you know, you get out if you feel, if you feel bad. I think that you should test it when you are in a situation that you don't have very much experience with. Um, I can't think of an example right now, but you should usually trust your intuition is basically what I'm saying and test it when you don't have any basis for not trusting it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I'm pretty much on the same, same wavelength as you are. I think I, when I was thinking of this question, I sort of came up with a little, like almost a mantra for myself, which is, you know, use your intuition, but then test it right. and do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's, mm-hmm. I think it's easy to, to say, well, you know, my intuition wasn't right in that case, but that's okay. It's my, I'm, I'm not always going to trust my intuition. I'll just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think, but that's, that's that trap of just saying, well, you know, I'm, 
that's that's my gut check and I've been told to trust it and that's it. But also what's the result? You know, is the result of your intuition telling you to cross the street uh, away from somebody that you stereotypically view as dangerous? Yeah. You know, and then you do that and you go, okay, well, I'm safe. So that means that I was right. Yeah. Maybe. Great point. Great point. Yeah. Right? That can so cause. I think it should always be tested, actually. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, and I agree yeah. with you that you shouldn't test it when there are risks. Yeah. Right. You shouldn't go like, well, I'm not going to believe my intuition. So I'm going to go into this. Right. This person's you know, not going to hurt me or mug me or right. whatever. Yeah. He he writes that um, under acute stress, people typically revert to their automatic, well-learned responses. That's evolutionarily adaptive. As long as you find yourself in the same environment in which those reactions were necessary. Yeah. So exactly. I think he is saying, you know, we need to test our intuition when we have time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's situational and it's experience based really is what it comes down to, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he has a quote that says, don't confuse confidence with competence. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of our confidence especially when we're starting out just as people, as working adults, as et cetera, mm-hmm. that comes from our intuition, yeah. right? Like, for example, doing this podcast, you know, 20, even 15 years ago, I would have been like, absolutely not. Are you kidding me? My intuition was run away. <laughs> don't, don't do that. They're Hi. all going to laugh at you, right? They're all oh. going to laugh at you. You don't have the necessary, you know, the imposter sy- syndrome. Oh, it's yeah. like, what am I doing here? Why would people be, why would people care about what I have to say? And do I have anything of value to say? And will I just trip up over every single word? You know, and over time, I have tested that intuition mm-hmm. and said, actually, that intuition is incorrect. Good. Because I've thrown myself or, you know, in the beginning, mm-hmm. I've, I've been thrown or had to get thrown into situations where I, where I felt as though I, I wasn't as, let's say, prepared as I needed to be. And, and a lot of these were social situations. But and then. I came out okay, and I've, you know, I felt like a total bag of nerves, and then I just, you know, imploded on the inside, and everyone's saying, oh, wow, that's amazing that you kept, you know, you know, so calm, and I'm like, calm, are you kidding me? Inside, it's, there's an A-bomb going off, but, um, but so after doing that over and over, I said, okay, actually, maybe I'm good at this. Yeah, it's experience. As you get older, you realize everybody else has the same fears I do. Everybody else is worried about having egg on their face and they're yeah. nervous. And, you know, I look at you two across from me and you look calm and collected and confident. <laughs> and I'm here certain going, what next is going to come out of my mouth? You know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you're right. You're right. Yeah. But I do, I want to circle back to the idea of the gut versus the brain. Um, because I listened to an interview with Adam um, this week and he, t- he said, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't think with my gut. I think with my brain. And I think that that was a, a powerful little anecdote for me to take um, because I, I don't mean, think that's true. I don't think any person can only think with their brain and not think with their gut. I don't think that that's possible. Yeah, I mean, and I you're guess, a robot at that point. I guess it kind of depends because, you know, both reactions and thinking goes on in your brain. But I react with my gut and I think with my brain. But, you know, in that moment, am I just reacting or am I thinking? Mm-hmm. You can control your reaction, but mm-hmm. you can't really control extent, what yeah. your gut is telling you. That's like your instinct. Right. You know, that's you, sort of like that's like your animalistic reaction, mm-hmm. whereas the brain is the, you know. Yeah. The well, you're, you know, you're staring down a scary, dark alley with, you know, looming large people, yeah, you know, and your right. gut is telling you, do not walk down this alley. Yeah. But your brain is like, 
that's, you know, Joe from the store and that's Bob from, you know, whatever. I'll be fine. So your brain takes you down there, but your gut is telling you no. Yeah. I mean, you control your actions. You can't control your gut feeling, is my opinion. Yeah. He does a whole uh, podcast episode on this, by the way. And he interviews Daniel Kahneman, author of Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, so if you want to learn more about intuition and... Um, whether you should trust it or all the time or test it, listen to that one. Hmm. Have you ever experienced uh, the benefits of imposter thoughts? What strategies do you use to question your knowledge while maintaining confidence in yourself? I think the imposter syndrome or imposter thoughts, I think that it has a, you know, it's a, it already has a loaded name. <laughs> imposter is something bad, Negative, right? Yeah. You don't want to be an imposter. You find imposters and get rid of them. But in my experience, it's it, the imposter th- imposter thinking is just a is a check is a doubt, which is I think it I think doubt is a good thing to have. You know, am I in the right place? Am I doing the right thing, etc. And then that's balanced by you know, your confidence of saying, yes, I've studied. Yes, I've done this before. Yes, I have something to say, etc. cetera. Um, and so there are, you know, the, the, the problem is when that gets out of whack, of course. But I think the benefits of having, having imposter thoughts is, you know, it, it doesn't help in the moment. Like right now, if my brain was saying, you know, don't start saying this, you're going to mess it up. That's not helpful, right? But beforehand, that does help. Because if I'm, if I'm, you know, three weeks ago and I'm saying, oh, my gosh, I haven't even started reading the book, I'm not going to be pre- prepared, that's good. Because mm-hmm. then your brain says, okay, so Motivation. open it, go read it, you know. <laughs> and so then you do. You, you get prepared. You figure out what you're going to talk about, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I, I definitely think there are some benefits there to be had. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. I, the benefits um, – or that it, it, it motivates you to do it because you don't want to look stupid in front of people. Um, I tend to stress out um, and overanalyze things, which makes me really get deep into what I'm trying to learn or present because I don't want to look stupid. Um, it's like the saying, the best way to learn something is to teach it, you know. Yeah. And you're basically teaching, you know, what you need to present or talk about. Um, and so you really don't want to mess it up and you learn more and more. Um, you know, one of the best strategies um, to uh, negate this is just – ask people what they think, you know, you know, say, here's my presentation. What did you think? Get feedback, um, you know, yes. or what do you, what do you know about this topic that I'm getting ready to talk about? Basically, it's kind of just a sly way of stealing, you know, the little information maybe that somebody else has yeah. that you don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's my strategy, but yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome is a real thing. Um, maybe for the listeners that don't know what that is, it's basically you are knowledgeable in a topic or, um, or something or profession and you don't, feel like you know what you're talking about, but you really do. And it strikes women, I think, more often than men. And, oh, yeah. and that would be something, Adam Grant, if you're listening. Um, I, I know in that interview you said you hadn't studied this, um, the effect of um, sex or gender on um, imposter syndrome um, and how it plays out in the workplace. So, yeah, you might want to work on that one <laughs> um, because that is huge, I think, especially yep. for women. And yep. women are often you know, considered less knowledgeable than men. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels like we have to struggle and work harder to prove ourselves often, right? Yeah, I agree. So I, I just wanted to throw that, out, throw that out there. Yeah, And that's always been a strange thing for me because ever since grade school, 
I have found, you know, just over, over and over, I'm like, wow, the girls are always getting better grades and they're always like super prepared and all that kind of stuff. And like that has extended into my adult life. And so it's a, it's a cruel, ironic twist mm-hmm. that it's like, but, and yet for some reason, the, the doubt on that side of the gender divide is huge. Right. And many times un, unwarrantedly it's on the other side, you know, yeah. where a lot of, a lot of men that I have known have been like, well, yeah, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just figured I'd wing it. I'd be fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to some extent, I mean, I was just talking about how I did that. Yeah. Right. But that was after testing that in- intuition yeah. and testing like, okay, do I, am I, can I do a good job because I've overcome the fact that I have doubt mm-hmm. or am I doing a good job because I'm prepared? Right. Well, and men and men can suffer from this. That's not to say For that sure. men can't, and and it can be debilitating to some Absolutely. people. Yeah. Um, but really, if you just if you suffer from it, use it to your advantage. You know, learn more about it, study more about it, um, ask people who you think know about it, um, and you'll be fine. And I think the feedback is critical. Right critical. after after you're done, you know, go to somebody who knows what they're doing mm-hmm. and say, "How did I do? How did yeah. I sound?" You know, it will be give honest me, with you. Feedback exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's because then you get, you get to talk to your own doubt and say, actually, all that stuff you were telling me, not true. I did a great job and I don't, and it's not me saying this, it's this other expert that knows what they're doing. They're typically your own worst enemy. Yeah. 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 And people don't pay as much attention to you as you think they do. Yeah. (laughs) In real life. So Grant writes about, um, having a challenge network where he advocates for folks to gather not just a support network, which has been, you know, more widely talked about, but a challenge network, right? So mm-hmm. where we would invite a group of those in our field, maybe, or people that we know to give us that critical feedback that we may lack from our support network mm-hmm. and really dig in and ask for that in order to get like more viewpoints on our work that, that might be hard for us to get otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, my husband is definitely my person. He's really the only person. I guess some colleagues from work, I guess, would be, but I think you guys are probably too nice to <laughs> tell me bad things about myself. Um, but he, he's really good at wording things to where it won't hurt my feelings. And he, he's very encouraging, so he's definitely my, my challenge network mm-hmm. partner. But the idea of asking for critical feedback is important. It's really key, I think, in this book. The idea of being a leader who is both confident and humble um, is the leader that Grant is writing about as mm-hmm. the most effective type of leader because you are not blindsided by your ego and you are um, saying, tell me what I don't know, mm-hmm. right, to your team um, and asking for the holes in your plan. So you have to kind of set aside that ego that we talked about in order yeah. to get there. Yeah, because, that's hard for people. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. But it, it's so critical, right? It is. Because no yeah. no leader, no one person knows everything that goes on. I mean, that's just impossible to do. Um, and, and a good leader wants that feedback, and they want to know what could be changed or improved. Or, Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that a challenge network and a support network, like you were saying, are totally, not totally different things, but the support a support network is there for you no matter what. Your challenge network is there for you as long as you're right. <laughs> and when you're wrong, we'll point that out to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, support network, like that's your mom. 
right? That's, <laughs> that's like, no matter if you've said something dumb, if you, yeah. if you totally yeah. failed, if you, uh, you know, if you, if <laughs> you And is it a challenge that we're your dad? Well, <laughs> those are siblings. It, it might be, yes, exactly. The yeah. siblings are like, the moment you fall, I'll be all over yes. you. Don't you worry. <laughs> that is true. And actually that you bring that up, I was going to say the example that, um, that Grant has in his book is Orville and Wilbur Wright. I love that story. I love that story. That was really right? cool. Like mm-hmm. they were just ahead of their were, times. They mm-hmm. were anti- they they were almost antagonistic about each other's ideas. I loved it. Right, but they never ceased to be their support network. Mm-hmm. They were brothers, mm-hmm. and they were always trying to help each other through that challenge. Yeah. So I think you know you can have both, but they are they are distinct. Yeah. That was a cool story. So on the on the flip side of, you know, getting that negative feedback or criticism, um, how do we kind of get over our egotistical reaction, right, and really embrace the joy of being wrong? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think that, I, and actually I can, I, I put some of Grant into a discussion that I had recently with a young man who needed help with their grades in my life. <laughs> and I pointed out to them the utility of wrong answers. Mm-hmm. You take a test, you get half of them wrong, let's say. And I, and I, what I wrote to him was, you know, if, if you get, you know, correct answers, great. You get to, you know, as long as you know why you got a correct answer, fantastic. That's where you get to feel good. If you got a wrong answer, great. Because now, you get to go back and fix what you didn't know. Mm-hmm. And like Grant says, um, you know, now you get to be less wrong than you were. Mm-hmm. Keep doing that. And you're going to be, you're going to be an incredible, you're going to have a brain that is very, that has a lot that is not wrong. Right, right. You know, that's fantastic. And you'd almost remember those wrong answers more than you would remember the right ones. Because you remember the right ones, okay, you got it right, gone. Right. And the wrong ones, you're like, okay, I got to fix this. I got to look up the answer. And then you're going to remember that feeling of being wrong and then finding the right answer, mm-hmm. for me anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, and I agree. That, that, that quote, um, yeah, he's, he enjoys being wrong because it means now he is less wrong than before. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that really stuck out to me in that book and that I will take away. Um, but to answer the question, um, I don't think anyone necessarily embraces being wrong. I hate being wrong. You know, I'm... I love being right. Of course, who doesn't? <laughs> but um, I think I accept it pretty well being wrong. It's like I don't, you know, beat myself up or you know think I'm ter- you know an idiot person or you know you know I'm gonna be fired or lose my friendships. But I don't embrace it. I don't like it. It's an uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. But you have to accept it and accept it for that reason that now you're less wrong. Yeah, I love it. And anyone who struggled with with either not being right or not feeling like they themselves are are in a correct place. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's difficult when you feel less than, when you feel sure. not oh not uh, that you don't have as much value as others do. That's not true. But it's interesting because over the long run all of those all the things that you've done wrong, you know, our quote unquote failures, mm-hmm. they all make us who we are now. Right. And for example, the only reason that I was able to give good advice to this person that needed 
help with their grades is because <laughs> I've gotten the D's and the F's yeah. and yeah. the like, wow, I really tanked that test and those horrible feelings that come with it or that feel, feeling of like, well, I have a 30 page te- a 30 page paper and I'm starting today and it's due tomorrow. You yep. know, that sort been of thing. There. Yeah, I've been there, done that. But we've been there, done that and learned that. Uh-huh. Right. And it makes us better people now that are able to help others and help right. ourselves. Right. I mean, no one's born knowing everything. I had to tell my son, it's like, right. he would stress out about not knowing something. I'm like, you've been on this planet for like eight years. I mean, he's 19 <laughs> now, but you know, you can't know everything. You yeah. That's how you learn is by yeah. being wrong. Yeah. I mean, he eventually embraced being wrong. <laughs> I think <laughs> a little too much. I like how he kind of ties in learning and being wrong with wisdom. Um, mm-hmm. He writes, a hallmark of wisdom is knowing when it's time to abandon your most treasured tools and some of the most cherished parts of your identity. And I think that is such a a wise thing to say because when you look back at the course of your life and how much we do change from those experiences when we were wrong or when we struggled, we realize that like knowledge and experience um, are are moving. Mm -hmm. It's not like stuck in time and how our self is moving. And so we may be a different person yeah. than we used to be. I mean, yeah. I hope we are. Right, right, right. Well, And so don't get your identity like so caught up in what you think at one time in your life or what even what you believe because the scientist is the one that's going to embrace the change and moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that also like ties back into being a person with a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a really kind of silly example um, of a time that I struggled um, admitting I was wrong was um, I I, I worked in the vet business for a long time and I've always heard from veterinarians and people in rescue and with people that I trust and value their opinion and believe to be right that black dogs are always harder to adopt out of shelters because they're big black dogs they're kind of nondescript you know whatever um, and so I always held on to that belief. And, you know, I was talking with somebody on social media a long time ago and they're like, no, that is wrong. That is wrong. That is not, um, that's a misconception. And I was like, no, you're wrong. You know, I've heard this, I've been in rescue and this person provided, you know, I guess some sort of studies that proved that she was right. And, you know, I had to really struggle. I looked at the studies and I looked at, you know, how they came to that conclusion. And, and it was true that the black dogs do not get not adopted, you know, at, at a lower rate than other type dogs. Um, and it just blew my mind because it made sense to me, you know. I mean, it, why would a cute puppy, you know, not be adopted before, you know, a three-year-old black kind of generic looking dog? But I was wrong. And it was really hard for me to come to that conclusion that that's, that's not a, a true statement. So kind of a silly example, but Something that's part of my mm-hmm. identity that I really believed for a long time, um, and I was wrong, and I was hard to admit. <laughs> so we discussed challenge networks already, um, but to kind of to suss that out a little bit more, um, when we do ask for feedback from our critics, um, how can we make sure that they're uh, comfortable being honest with us? And Adam Grant um in the interview I listened to with him talked about something, which I don't think he wrote about it in the book. I'm not sure. Um, but talking about how managers will make themselves a little bit vulnerable in front of their teams. So if you are a manager or leader, <laughs> maybe take note. 
um, he had them read their negative performance reviews from their bosses yeah. um, in front of their teams. And um, that could be a very humbling experience, right? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> would that be difficult for you managers out there? <laughs> I, I'm not a manager, but I don't think that would be difficult to me. Like, I'm generally interested in what I, what I do wrong. I am. I mean, I don't, you have to not take it personally. And I think that comes with just age. I'm old. (laughs) No, you are not old. (laughs) I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, could you, could you do that? Could you sit here and listen to us saying, well, this is what you do wrong. I wish you did this different. That it, it would be tough, but I think it's just, it's necessary. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think also, especially for leaders, you know, the your reaction to that means just as much as the criticism itself. Absolutely. Because I think what, you know, if you're going to have somebody be honest with you, they are, are, especially if it's a situation where you're having to be honest with your boss. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, right, retribution. Yeah. What is this going to cost me? To be this honest. Your gut instinct is screaming, no. Yeah. Do not be e- honest. Exactly. Um, I think so that, so so to make them feel okay with being honest, you have to, number one, you know, make sure that, and, and it may be a process, right? They have to test this out. Mm-hmm. That they go, okay, I'm going to put in one little thing and see how it goes. Yeah. You know? And so there can't be retribution, but there also has to be a, you have to take that in, process it, and then what do you do with that? Because I think, you know, you can sit here and take all the criticism, the, the worst criticism you want, but if you don't do anything with it, who cares? Yeah. And people who are giving that feedback are, are going to say, well, then this isn't really honest, right? This is me talking to a brick wall. Who cares? I could say glowing things. I could say horrible things. Nothing's changing. So I think as a leader, you have to say, okay, well, you know, they're criticizing my ability to do X, Y, Z. How am I going to improve that? And... I think it's always nice to say, you know, thanks to the feedback that I got from such and such person. So you are bringing them up mm-hmm. and that that then they get to feel like, wow, I had something of value to contribute. And then this process changed because of what I did. I can't wait to be honest again. That's a great point. Yes, I think it, it does touch on the uh, psychological safety um, that we will discuss a little bit more uh, in the next section. So, um We'll, we'll touch on some interpersonal rethinking questions now. In a heated debate, what questions have you found helpful for opening others' minds? And if you haven't read the book yet, he does have a number of sections in the book where he describes um, debate practices and kind of analyzes a debate between two, well, uh, one young person and one actually robot Um, Yeah, that was really a good story, too. Yeah, so he describes debate as a dance and not a war, um, which I liked because I dance. Um, So in a dance, we move forward with our partner by taking a cue from their steps, which is considering their arguments, and in turn, only putting our best steps or our best responses forward. So we're kind of moving together with our debate opponent. Mm -hmm. I guess I thought, like, it's really not about winning because you said you know in a war where there's a winner there's going to be a loser in a dance it it's not right it's you both are enjoying the dance mm-hmm. um and it, it's about both partners I liked how he said you know 
great listeners are more interested in making their audiences feel smart. So you aren't just kind of like, how can I exterminate this person? But you, you kind of are like, how, who is this person? I'm going to take an interest in you and I'm going to say things that make you feel smart because why? Because that's how you get people to listen. People don't want just a, a bunch of like arguments coming out at them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, when we try to convince people to think again, our first instinct is usually to start talking. Yet, the most effective way to help people open their minds is often to listen. And, and that it's not going to be about status and power like a war would be. Um, it's really about taking an interest in other people's interests, right? It is. I love the study that he that he was talking about comparing average negotiators and expert negotiators and what they do differently. And the two big things that they do differently is they find common ground and they ask questions. And they have a lot less and they bring a lot less reasons. Mm-hmm. Not like here's my fifty bullet point long list of the reasons why you're wrong and I'm right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much more about, well, what do we have in common? And, you know, once you, once you, once you, once you do that, you, it, there's almost like a humanizing aspect, you know, where it's like, it's not two, you know, out groups, but it's an in group. Actually, we have the same goals. We, we have a lot more in common than we thought. So then you don't want to exterminate someone you have something in common with. Actually, you're like, well, you're kind of one of me. So I don't mind if you win and I win that, that'd be great. And I think he also says, quote, Skilled negotiators rarely went on offense or defense, which blew my mind. I'm like, if you're in a negotiation, right, it's okay. When do you do offense? When do you do defense? When, you know, are you always in the attack or should you wait for them to come first? And he's saying, actually, if you're really good at this, you don't do that at all, which that, that blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a lot of debates, you know, heated or otherwise. I just really don't. Um, but like you were saying, I, I – when I do have a discussion or a debate, um, open-ended questions seem to work the best. And I use the saying, that's fair, a lot, you know, before I start my point, my rebuttal. Um, and I think, like you said, that puts us on a, on a kind of a common ground. Like, to me, when you say, that's fair, you're kind of saying, I understand what you're saying, and, and, and I understand maybe why you feel that way. And, and you, are, you are right to feel the way that you feel. Um, before, you know, you start giving your points back. Um, you know, and I, I've been to, you know, marriage therapy with my husband, you know, for, you know, years. And the listening part, the, he struggled with when I was talking. In his brain, he was like, okay, what am I going to say next? He wasn't really listening to what I was saying. And, you know, probably I was a little bit of the same way. But we've learned how to, like, not shut our brains down, but open our brains Quit trying to think of what you're going to say next and listen to what I'm saying. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. And that is a skill that you have to almost force yourself to learn. If you want to have discussions or debates with people and find that common ground and, you know, not end up in a screaming match or door slamming, you know. Right. And it's an arms race. Well, if you don't listen to me, I'm not going to listen right. to you. Right. If you just tell me I'm stupid, I'm just going to tell you you're stupid. Right. And then negotiation, you know, reaches its critical mass and everything just yeah, explodes. Just, and then there's... So in this, like, theoretical debate, like, let's say you end up with somebody that says to you, let's agree to disagree. How do you learn to handle it differently next time? So what's, well, did he remind me in the book, did he say that this was a bad strategy? Because I vaguely remember him saying that it wasn't a good thing, and I don't understand why. Because I like that saying. Let's agree to disagree? 
Yeah. Well, what's wrong with that? I so I've always heard that expression, of course, and and I liked it too at the beginning because I said, okay, you just instead of saying let's let's fight about it, okay, let's bring the temperature down, and it's okay that you have different opinions than I do. And technically, I still think that's true. It's like a polite closer to the conversation. <clears throat> it is, but it also can very quickly just it shuts down the whole debate. And mm-hmm. just says, okay, you stay on your side, I'll stay on my side. Isn't that sometimes necessary? It's sometimes necessary, but it depends on your goal, right? If your goal is, well, I'm never going to see you again, it really doesn't matter to me, okay, yeah. then maybe, yeah, that's fine, okay. right? Or if it's somebody that you know that, like, that for whatever reason, they don't want to get along, they want to exterminate you in the dance, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing, <laughs> right? Then, okay, that, that's something else. But when you have an argument... When you disagree, that is like, that's the spice of having different brains all across this planet is let's have a disagreement. Why is that? Interesting. What if you know something that I don't and this argument is going to make me smarter? I'm going to become less wrong. I want the debate. I want to know why it is you feel this way because I can learn something from you. Sure. I guess it's situational, too. I mean, it could apply to the argument, what's better, dogs or cats? I mean, there's no real answer. You know, it's your opinion. And, you know, if if you like dogs and I like cats, we can agree to disagree because cats are best. I think, but I think what <laughs> he's getting at. I mean, they're at, not, though. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think what Johannes is trying to say, though, is that that's a stopping point when we say this phrase, let's agree to disagree and let's move on right. and let's be friends, right? Right. It's a polite or, or whatever it is. But... Adam Grant is really asking us to reframe what we're saying um, in order to move deeper. So he writes that experiments show that simply framing a dispute as a debate rather than a disagreement, so there's that word disagree, disagreement, signals that you were receptive to dissenting opinions and changing your mind, which in turn motivates the other person to share more information with you. So I think it's just saying, like, let's continue Let's keep an open mind and let's share more information instead of closing off. Um, And I think in workplaces, it's really key that we have um, conflict, which is good conflict um, and not bad conflict so that we we're not going to say, well, you know, I don't want to bring this criticism up to you because I don't want it to be seen as being disagreeable um, or rocking the boat, um, but rather um, let me frame this as a debate with you okay. and not a disagreement, not an interpersonal conflict, but a... Um, an intellectual one. Intellectual, yeah. yeah. Right, well, or you're debating um, the ideas instead of, well, but I'm better than you. Like, that's not... Well, yeah, the, you should always do that. Right, absolutely. But I still... Gosh, maybe, and I'm I'm the perfect example of somebody who reread this book. <laughs> I still disagree. I think that it is okay to say, let's agree to disagree. I think it is in certain cases. But sure. the clincher for me is, well, would the rights have have made their plane if they just said, well, I agree to disagree? Oh, okay. Right? okay. They right. hashed the living they did. <clears throat> out of that. What right? a neat family. And, right, absolutely. And they would not let it rest. And they had very heated arguments because they really wanted to know what, what was the right answer? And the only thing that led them to, okay, let's do this kind of propeller and let's have this kind of shape yeah. is that very, uh, not con- not contentious exactly, but just that very spirited yeah. debate. That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Um, when giving advice, how do you reinforce the other person's freedom of choice? Well, I use a lot of, in my opinion, um, you know, I don't try to say, well, you, you should be doing this. I don't use a lot of declarative statements. Um, you know, and I also, when I'm giving advice to somebody, I also try to do like, let's play the scenario game. You know, if you did it this way, what would happen? You know, I'm trying to get my son to change the oil in his car and he keeps putting it off. And I'm like, what's going to happen when your engine falls out? You know, are you going to have money saved up to buy a new car or get that fixed? And of course he just ignores me. But um, yeah, you, you know, don't force your opinion on somebody and, and, and try to help them see the different scenarios if they take your advice or don't take your advice and use a lot of, I feel this way. And that's my approach. Who knows if it works? I think in this case, I, I definitely uh, use the golden rule Yeah, and say, okay, if I was in a debate, if I had a, you know, if I was in a discussion, how would I want to be treated? How would I want to be listened to? All that sort of thing. I want, you know, I don't want people talking over me. I don't want people, you know, telling me, well, your ideas are just dumb, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Exactly. Um, so I think that just says, okay, well, you know, I, I have to give you that respect to get that respect back from you. So I'm going to listen to you. I'm not going to attack, you know, I may attack the idea itself, but it doesn't matter who it's coming from. So I'm not going to attack you because right. I don't want to be attacked. I like that chapter where um, he was talking about vaccine whisperers. He wrote about a yeah. French Canadian woman who was hesitant to have her children vaccinated. Um, and that the doctor who is someone that's known as like a vaccine whisperer who was able to change her mind really focused on her as a person, like you were saying, Johannes, and ultimately left the freedom of choice up to her by saying, I've, you know, I've given you some different things to think about and I trust you to make the right decision um, so that she felt a sense of ownership Mm -hmm. because Adam writes that, um, you know, psychologists have long found that the person most likely to persuade you to change your mind is you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good, that was a good chapter as well. Um, you know, she, she, did, she was, thought she was being a good mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and because sh- of her environment right, that she was in. Right, and I'm there. sure she was. Um, I don't agree with her approach, but the way that the vaccine whisperer, you know, quote unquote, managed that was really interesting. Like, that would be really hard for me to do because I would probably get just too angry. Well, and it does acknowledge their autonomy, mm-hmm. right? It does say, well, no matter how many studies, no matter how many books I've read, care. no matter how many yeah. degrees I have, I could sit here and rail against you for days on end. But if you decide not to change your mind, you will not change your mind. Right. Nothing can make you change. Yeah. And by, by just saying, you know, you're in charge of you, you're in charge of your kids, you're in charge of your beliefs, you're in charge of your life. So, you know, here's what I think. This is what I've seen. But you make the final call as I will, as you, as everybody will. Yeah, it really takes the pressure off the person. Yeah. Yes. Which gives them the freedom to think and decide for themselves. I mean, if somebody was trying yeah. to force their opinion that I didn't right. agree with or their advice. And you go you know, into defensive mode. Right, exactly. absolutely. Yeah. That's totally the yeah. wagons. Yeah. I think that's what you want to avoid. Yeah. yeah. It's hard, though. When you really feel strongly about something, that's really hard to do. So we're going to touch briefly on collective rethinking before we go. And Adam Grant writes about um, some school children in one chapter. Um, How can schools do a better job teaching kids to think again? 
I loved the example of the butterfly drafts. So they had a child make a first draft of drawing a butterfly, an anatomically correct butterfly. And these are like six-year-olds, right? Yeah, right. First and graders, I think. So cute. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, the first draft, you know, barely looks like a butterfly at all. It sort of has lobes. Like you could tell okay, it <laughs> might have wings. It might have a body. That's about it. And then then they they brought together the other kids and they had a, a feedback and sort of criticism session where they said, well, I think these wings should be bigger or I think this should be smaller or maybe you should draw a little color here or, you know, et cetera. And so then through this process, and they did it over and over until they got, I think, to the fifth draft. And by the fifth draft, I mean, I'm like, I definitely couldn't do that good, you know, now as a 42-year-old, let alone as a six-year-old. But I loved that it was collaborative and it was safe, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, first of all, I mean, we've just, we, we are such highly evolved relationship animals mm-hmm. that we need that collaboration. And when we have that, we really feed off of it, especially when it's safe. And it may be a little hard to do in elementary school where you're just like, how's my butterfly? It's stupid. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's okay. <laughs> so if you can if you can have something constructive going on mm-hmm. like that, I mean, and I just think that's a huge metaphor for uh, how how education is in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the teacher. I'm the expert. All you kids, be quiet. I'm going to fill your brains with knowledge, yeah. and then later on, you're going to throw you're going to throw it up right. back at you're me. You're going to get right? tested, right? Yeah. And it's like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> like, I understand that that might lead to like some absorption of some some dates, but not to really incorporate the information on. Okay, how do I go out and use the date of the Civil War in my in my day to day life? But collaboration, yeah, and sitting down and saying, what do you think? And wow, look at my first draft and look at my fifth draft. With the help of my collaborators, I was able to make something honestly fantastic. Yeah, that's a great concept. Um, I unfortunately don't think that that can be applied all throughout, you know, the 12 plus years of schooling. There's just not enough time. There's just not enough time. Classes are too large. Teachers are too few. I don't um, know. I, I think it's more of reimagining how teachers teach and that... It's not like the end graded process. It's more of like, you know, the expectation is we're going to make five or six drafts right, absolutely. of what we're doing. And that that's like, that's the process. And that's how we think. And then we think again mm-hmm. about what we've done. We, mm-hmm. we do something, we reevaluate, we reiterate. Yeah. Um, and that teaching children that, that, that learning is like a lifelong process. It's not just an end result um, is the point of that. Absolutely. I mean, the theory is sound, but can you make five drafts of every concept you learn? Yeah. You can? I think so. Yeah, I mean, every... You're going to be in school 24 hours a day. (laughs) Well, it depends on, you know, you can't, you may not be able to teach, okay, we're going to draw every single bug in this book. Okay, you can't do that, Mm -hmm. right? But once you have that concept of, okay, let's So you're teaching the application, not... Mm -hmm. You know. Like Jenna, like you said, okay. it's about the process, right? It's not about, okay, we want to create perfect butterflies yeah. every time. What okay. for? Well, and well, also that's where your ego gets tied in because mm-hmm. you're like, your child is like, here, I've I've done this or you're a student. And then as the adult or teacher, you have to look at it and be like, good job. Or like, you know, like, oh, I like this about that. Or, mm-hmm. or come up with like, well, maybe you could do this differently instead of like putting that on them and saying, well, hey, like, okay, 
I'm like that you did that you right. did this thing and that this is a process and like right. what can we what can we do now to change it or like improve it? Right. So you're teaching you know, about the concept of the first time is not always the only time. You can absolutely. you can yeah. redo over things and yes. you know, it's you know, with math and yes. with science and with art absolutely. and sports yeah. and yeah, if you if you mess up the first time, who cares? Just right. do and it again. so and so often I think our egos become fragile and rigid mm-hmm. because we're expected to just make this product and have it be judged immediately and, the first time. Right. And do it right. Instead yeah. and so instead if we were more beat up along the way, we're like <laughs> we're kind of used to being imperfect. Jane is violent today. <laughs> you know. <laughs> we're used to that imperfection mm-hmm. we expect it of ourselves and others and like that's just right. part of the process. Expect right. to mess up. All right. Well, this has um, been a, an interesting discussion of Think Again by Adam Grant. Thank you, Devin and Johannes. Thank you, Jenna. And Thanks, Jenna. for our next episode, we'll have an end of the year discussion where we'll reflect on what we've read and discovered in 2021, what made us laugh and what made us cry. Yes, we started this endeavor back in January in our closets and there were tears. So listen to our year end episode on December 10th to hear what we will be reading in the first half of 2022. Thoughts about Book Chatter? We'd love to hear from you. Check out our program notes for details on how to contact us. And thanks for listening. See you next time on Book Chatter, the book club for busy people. Bye.